This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run on BFM 89.9. I'm Melissa Idris. I've got Julian Ng here with me. It's now 9.36 and time for the SM Show. This is the show where we rant about what's working in markets and what's not. And on the, the show today, we have with us Munir Abdul Aziz, partner in the corporate and commercial securities practice of Wong and Partners, which is a member of a member firm of Baker and McKenzie International. So good morning, Munir. Good to have you on the show. Hi, good morning. Nice to be here. So the issue we're going to discuss this morning is if Malaysia should consider introducing a dual-class share structure because uh, Singapore recently moved in this direction. They allowed, they, they're moving to allow public listing of dual-class shares on the Singapore exchange. And for those who don't quite understand the distinction, Munir, can you explain how a, a, dual-class, a dual-class share structure works? Sure, happy to do so. So the way it works is this. Um, Essentially, a company with a dual-class share structure uh, is a company in which there are uh, unequal voting rights attached to certain shares of the company. It's no longer one man, one vote, right? That is correct. That is absolutely right. Or one woman, one vote. Yeah. Thank you, Joseph. (laughs) So typically, uh, if you have a a growth company, for example, uh, and that growth company was founded by a special person like Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, uh, we've heard of him. Jack Ma. Jack Ma. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So those guys, uh, you know, they will say that they have expended a lot of time and effort in uh, growing this beautiful thing, um, their companies. And so they say that... uh, even though they're going to list the company, they don't necessarily want to lose their preponderant voting rights, you know, their disproportionate voting rights in the company. So that means that they will hold a separate class of shares as compared to ordinary shareholders. Uh, this was uh, the structure, I mean, going back to history a bit, that was started in the United States, right? Uh, is it true to say that uh, they enable this structure because they want to protect the founding shareholders from the vagaries uh, and the short-termism of the stock market uh, because the stock market's participants are worried about uh, profits from quarter to quarter, whereas the founding shareholders are much longer term in nature, right? Yes, that's a very good point. That is certainly one of the key and important reasons for having dual-class share structures. Uh, But the other is actually around uh, the nature of the individual, uh, the founder who actually holds these special shares. So uh, the idea is that these are individuals who actually add continuing value to the company. Uh, I guess, you know, some people feel that, you know, Alibaba won't be as special as it is today without Jack Ma at the helm. <laughs> yeah. So it's important that we keep him in the building as such. So, Mune, how how does a company go about determining who gets these special class shares and who just gets a, a regular share? So typically the people who um, get these special shares are what we would call promoters uh, of the company uh, in the IPO. So these are typically the founders and the major shareholders uh, of the company. So before a company uh, initiates an initial public offering uh, exercise, obviously they will start talking to bankers and they will tell the bankers, look, this is how I would like to structure my IPO. Uh, we need to have dual-class share structures because you know myself and my two or three other fellow uh, founder shareholders, we are very special people. <laughs> <laughs> We need to be given some you know, special shares. Yeah. Right? Uh, so are you saying that within a dual-class uh, share structure, the, the people with special shares could be a very small group? So you're talking about maybe two, 
two to three people even. Yes, typically, yeah. typically that's the case. Yeah, it's actually something that has been around for a long time. I was just chatting with Julian earlier, and uh, in actual fact, uh, this has been around for hundreds of years in countries in Europe, for example, where you know uh, you had founder families of uh, big name companies. Some of these uh, companies still hold the names of their founder families. Right. Till yeah? today. Till yeah. today, you know. Uh, Faber Castell, for oh, example. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, from, the, from the Von Castell family. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. So fast forward till today, uh, mm. we have Singapore jumping onto this dual class. Uh, I don't know if I can call it a bandwagon, but it was certainly something that was very controversial because the Hong Kong Stock Exchange lost the extremely lucrative Alibaba IPO, not to mention the bragging rights, and uh, also uh, some would say the development of the market of Hong Kong. They lost that Alibaba IPO to the New York Stock Exchange, right? Um, why is it so controversial? Because obviously Hong Kong didn't really jump into it, and, and Singapore is proposing it right now. Yeah. So it all goes back to, I think you were alluding to it at the beginning, Julian, uh, this whole concept of uh, one man, one vote, one shareholder, one vote. That's a very, very fundamental principle for a couple of reasons. One is fairness, of course. Yeah. So it shouldn't matter uh, who the person holding the share is. That person should have the same voting right as any other. This is important from the perspective of a company that seeks listing. Because when you seek a listing, you are effectively offering your shares to public shareholders. And you want to make them feel uh, included. You want them to feel that they have as much rights as anybody else. The second very important reason is uh, this concept of uh, the obligations that come with the shares, right? So, uh, you know, it's not just uh, a case of enjoying returns. You know, if you're a shareholder of a company, from time to time, you may actually have to be uh, poning some money up for, your, <laughs> for the company. There are more investing. responsibilities as, a, as an investor than to sit back and collect dividends. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. From time to time, as you know, particularly with financial services companies in recent times, they've had to undertake rights issues, right? Yep. So people have to pony up capital, right, to the company, for the company from time to time. So why is it that uh, major shareholder X, right, uh, only has to pony up you know, $1 for each share that he holds, just like everybody else, but he has 10 shares, you know, right. that he can vote um, if there is a resolution put before the shareholders. So the risk is not equally spread among all the shareholders. That's okay. right, that's right. And of course, the other risk is entrenchment, right? So these shareholders effectively form a blocking block uh, of shareholders in the company. Uh, so in other words, it may be difficult uh, for a minority shareholder to be able to realize value in the context, for example, of a takeover situation. Right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a bidder may be uh, constrained in uh, pursuing his bid because there is this block of shareholders uh, who can potentially block the takeover of the company. So in the context yeah. of uh, some of these regimes that have accepted this kind of structure, mm. how have they gotten around uh, the potential for the abuse or violation of rights of the minority shareholder? 
Yeah. So this is one of the things uh, which, you know, um, the Singapore Stock Exchange in particular, although, of course, they haven't publicly come up with uh, what their formal measures are going to be, but we, we have an idea of what they are thinking of. And it really revolves around um, some very specific rules around um, mitigating uh, the potential and risk of abuses by the people who hold these types of shares. So, for example, um, it, it is very important to uh, enhance the level of corporate governance of the company. So any company with a dual-class share structure must be subject to the highest levels of corporate governance. Uh, it will likely have to have uh, a majority of independent directors on its board. The appointment or election of uh, independent directors would have to be subject to uh, an equal vote. So, you know, the holders of the special shares don't have additional voting rights right. uh, when it comes to the appointment of the independent directors. There are uh, stricter rules around related party transactions, for example. Uh, and there are also uh, mechanisms by which, um, you know, the shelf life of that special share uh, may have to be expired. Right. So the safeguards to ensure that the risks with a dual class uh, share structure, um, the, the standards have to be a lot higher than a basic structure. That's okay. Right. Well, it's uh, coming up to 9.45 right now. And after this, we will compare the dual share structure with other versions of class-based share structures. So make sure you stay tuned to the SNM show, BFM 89.9. Good morning. It's now 9.46. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng on the SNM show this morning. And uh, today we're looking at dual class share structures and if this is in fact a direction that Malaysia should be considering. To help us with this topic is Munir Abdul Aziz, partner at Wong and Partners. Um, and in, if I'm not mistaken, Jules, this dual class share structure is not the only iteration of this. There are many different versions of class-based structures. Yeah, I think uh, we would like to seek your idea of whether Malaysia should go this direction later on. But for now, you know, just quickly take us through some of uh, the uh, ver various iterations. For example, we are very used to the idea of preference shares mm. where uh, the shareholders also have no voting rights but uh, ha are guaranteed a certain level of dividends and seniority as far as uh, uh, credit claims are concerned. Is this uh, something that can endear Malaysians uh, towards the dual share structure? Um, yes, you're right. I mean, there are many different types of shares out there. Uh, they don't necessarily all apply in the public company context. Um, preference shares are, of course, very interesting, uh, also uh, very well established. But generally speaking, uh, people use preference shares typically as a form of injecting capital in the, into the company and to be able to generate a steady uh, rate of return uh, and a more certain rate of return uh, versus the dividends that uh, one would ordinarily expect uh, when one holds ordinary shares. Correct. So they explicitly give up that right just for certain uh, certainties. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So a lot of people look at preference shares, for example, more as debt-like instruments rather than equity instruments. Yeah. Okay. What, what about uh, foreign and local shares? I mean, mm. uh, we used to have this in the past uh, with yeah. our banking stocks. So we, mm. I think we no longer have them. Mm. Uh, but I think it's still this kind of structure exists in places like uh, the Bangkok Stock Exchange and Stock yeah. Exchange of Thailand. Mm. Um, isn't this also like a kind of uh, very similar to dual uh, share structure because it is very class-based. Certain shareholders are prevented from voting a certain way. Um, it is 
uh, interesting. Uh, it is uh, different from the dual class share structure, however. Um, the difference is this. Uh, the point of these types of uh, structures or arrangements is really to ensure compliance with certain nationally mandated ideas or notions around foreign ownership, uh, particularly in sensitive companies like banks, telecommunications companies, energy companies, infrastructure mm-hmm. companies. Uh, and the way it works is, is actually very different. Uh, so, and in fact, ultimately, and this is the reason why they were abandoned, not very market friendly. Yeah, uh, the idea was that uh, you would only foreigners would only be able to hold shares in certain public companies up to a certain percentage, twenty five percent, thirty percent, whatever is the limit that you choose to adopt for that particular type of company. And then, what would happen if, for example, uh, this limit was exceeded? The holders of those shares would lose their voting rights or they would be suspended for a certain period of time until the company uh, complied again with that limit. Now, that's just a very blunt way of uh, dealing with uh, you know, a, a very uh, sensitive area in the sense that obviously people feel very strongly about their ability to vote, right? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't just be the case that, oh, you know, I have to arbitrarily suddenly suffer uh, the inability to vote just because I bought my shares at a point in time when there was a high level of foreign shareholding in the company. So I think that was probably the main reason why it was abandoned. It just wasn't market-friendly. Yeah. So, and um, I, I think that, uh, you know, Malaysia also has this other structure called uh, the golden share, mm. uh, which, is, which was very common. I don't know whether it's still around these days, mm. but uh, it enabled the government to make certain key decisions in strategic industries. Mm. Uh, do you think that this is uh, a, a good structure or should the Malaysian government adopt some more innovative structures like the dual share structure? Yeah. Yes, actually the golden share structure is not unique to Malaysia. Um, as with many things in Malaysia, uh, <laughs> we adopt um, a lot of things from outside. Uh, and in fact, the golden share structure came about uh, principally from Europe. Um, I think the UK was also quite influential um, because there was a wave of privatizations, if you remember, back in the days of the late dearly departed Baroness Thatcher. She was, you know, a big proponent of privatization. So, you know, you had big companies like British Gas, uh, British Telecoms, all of these companies were listed on the stock exchange. But of course, they were very strategic companies and the government felt that they needed to have some degree of control over them. So this concept was introduced. And of course, you know, when we went on our own wave of uh, privatizations in the late 80s, early 90s, what did we do? <laughs> exactly. I remember Malaysian Airlines okay. had that golden share, right? That's correct. Do you know if it's still, if it's still being used at the moment? Well, um, so the way in which uh, the, priv- the golden share works is that uh, there is a right that is in fact incorporated within the memorandum and articles of association of the company, right? In which you know, the shareholder does have what effectively amounts to a veto right. You know, when the company proposes to do something material, for example, if it were to change its course of business, uh, if it were to uh, acquire a material asset or dispose of a material asset, then the approval of that shareholder would be required. If that shareholder voted against it, then that proposal would fail okay. or could so, not proceed. Power. Mm. So what is the difference uh, between the golden share and the dual class share structure uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? It sounds, uh, sounds kind of similar yeah. to me. Mm. 
Okay, so the difference is that the golden share is typically uh, put in place to protect um, some larger national overriding objective, right? Um, control over a sensitive industry. Again, that's not necessarily something that's particularly market-friendly. Yeah. <laughs> particularly if you're trying to promote that company, you're trying to invite uh, investors to invest in that company, right? Um, the other way in which it is different from the dual-class uh, share structure is that uh, it is not packed to numbers. You know, it is just an absolute right to veto something from being done. Right. Whereas with you know the dual-class share structure, you uh, are able to quantify quite precisely uh, what is the level of voting rights of a particular founder shareholder. Right? If, for example, your ratio is three to one for every share that he holds, he has three. Uh, three oh, voting rights. I see. So then you can actually compute that in the context of uh, the entire share capital of the company. Right. This is important from the perspective of somebody uh, who potentially, let's say, wants to take over the company. So I know what is the degree of influence that, that particular person has uh, versus, you know, with the golden share. Uh, it is yes or no. It's yeah. a yes or no. Mm. That's correct. It's a veto, veto right. So yeah. I, guess, I guess the conclusion of this is Munir. What what do you think uh, about this share structure? Do you think this is an area or direction that Malaysia should be heading towards? Well, my feeling is, uh, and you know, I've been around for a few years <laughs> as a corporate <laughs> lawyer in Malaysia. Just a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few years. I I have always felt that uh, Malaysia needs always to be on the lookout for opportunities to innovate, you know, like any other country, but much more so for us as a country. Because, look, let's face it, we're still a relatively small country. We're still a developing country. We have very big aspirations for ourselves. And in trying to achieve those very high aspirations, we must look at ways in which we can improve. We can market ourselves and pitch ourselves better to entrepreneurs, uh, to investors, to institutional funds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we may not necessarily adopt dual-class share structures in Malaysia or uh, the concept as it currently exists in NYSE or in NASDAQ or as the Singaporeans may potentially wish to do, but we must consider whether or not we, we would like to at least incorporate certain elements of uh, these innovative uh, ways of doing things. Yeah, but I'm wondering whether we can uh, do it slowly or just go uh, head on into it because mm. uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, fundraisers today are the tech companies, right? And tech companies work so quickly. You know, everything happened yesterday. Uh, and uh, the question is whether you have the right structure for us. I noted that uh, Grab, for example, mm. is headquartered in Singapore. That is where their legal entity resides, even though they are a Malaysian company. Okay, we exactly. claim them as they, they are Malaysian, right? So. <laughs> Is this uh, a sign of a more ominous things to come that we're not developing fast enough to grab some of this, pun intended, uh, <laughs> innovative, innovative money, right? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, in my article, I did mention that, uh, you know, we are trying, uh, like many other countries, of course, um, to be an important uh, market country jurisdiction for uh, fintech, Right. Uh, we are also obviously trying to attract and develop our own uh, group of entrepreneurs, right? Now, these are very mercurial people, as we know, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, they are obviously value-driven. And of course, they would also be uh, very, very keen to ensure that if they are going to commit, you know, 
uh, their lives, uh, their time to this particular company, that uh, they would like to have you know, certain returns as well as certain rights over this thing that they founded and they continue to develop. So why not go all the way? Why not go head on uh, into adoption yeah, of the dual class dive strength right into with, the deep end. with all the very appealing mitigations and safeguards that you mentioned? It's not so easy <laughs> uh, because, you know, even uh, the NYSE took years and years, more than 50 years before they decided to lift uh, their restriction against dual class share structures. And why did they do it? Ultimately, it was because of competition from the NASDAQ. NASDAQ. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's something that the market has to get used to. Uh, it will actually also require certain changes to the rules uh, that apply to public companies and to listings. Um, and it basically means that uh, we have to educate the uh, investor base uh, and we also have to manage the expectations of our founder shareholders as well. So there are many different things that need to go on before we can get to that particular place. Uh, it's often the case that you, know, you should, before you introduce uh, changes to regulatory frameworks, prepare the market or prepare the ground. Right. But it's, it's time of the essence, Munir, because um, we, we want that competitive, competitive advantage, right? Yeah. Uh, there are no other uh, markets within the Asian region that offer the dual class, uh, class structure as opposed to us, uh, as apart from Singapore, which is trying to introduce it. Yeah. So, you know, being, being the first in the region will give you a, a leg up, right? And, sure. and then also on top of that, now we have companies like AirAsia talking about listing in various parts of the region. Top Glove has gone to Singapore to list for whatever reason. But Dual it, listing. It, it seems like some kind of um, very ominous movement. Uh, you're right. Um, you know, obviously, uh, owners of businesses um, like those that we referred to earlier, you know, they're always looking for value. Many of them are looking to build uh, regional platforms. Uh, you know, we're a great country. We produce great entrepreneurs in this country. But let's face it, you know, our market is relatively small. We are a country of 30 million people. So people uh, are increasingly looking at listing their businesses on uh, stock markets which they consider to be more regional in outlook. You right. know, Bursa Malaysia may take issue with me on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it is in the interest of Bursa to also... Um, try to make their exchange appear to be more regional yeah. in nature by attracting companies of this sort of breadth and scope. Yeah. Securities Commission as well. Yeah. Securities <laughs> they, Commission. They would have to uh, Let's deal not forget with this them. as well. Yeah. Yes, they are very keen. They are yeah. uh, among the most innovative regulators in the country. Yeah. Um, and, and so is Bursa. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty certain that, uh, you know, there, there are people out there who are looking at this quite seriously. And I would hope that, uh, you know, the initial step would be that, you know, people um, look for opportunities to consult with the market, uh, get feedback, get input, uh, and see to what extent we could potentially uh, move forward with this. may not necessarily be in the form uh, that uh, NASDAQ are doing it or the way that Singapore intends to do it, but we have to think about it. Munir, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your insights on this. My that, pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the SNM Show with Munir Abdul Aziz, partner in the Corporate and Commercial Securities Practice of Wong and Partners. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng for BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.